This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Media, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Allison Hahn. Allison is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Baruch College, City University of New York. She earned a BA in Africana Studies, Anthropology, and Political Science at the University of Pittsburgh. She was then a Fulbright Research Fellow at the National University of Mongolia, Department of Political Science. After returning to the United States, she earned a Master's of International Development in Development Planning and Environmental Sustainability sustainability, and a PhD in communication from the University of Pittsburgh. Allison's research investigates the argumentation and protest strategies used in environmental controversies by pastoral nomadic communities across Central Asia, East Africa, and the Middle East. And today, we'll be talking about her book, Media Culture in Nomadic Communities, published in 2021 by Amsterdam University Press. So thank you so much, Allison, for joining me. Thanks for having me. So to get started, could you maybe just expand a little bit on what the research was that you were conducting for this book? And I'm also interested in just how you became interested in this topic um, or how you kind of made your way to this topic. Sure. This book comes out of a lot of conversations I've had with my undergraduate students and the difficulty of portraying my own research about land loss and nomadic communities to students that are just like, what are you talking about? Who have like this dusty image of a nomad somewhere far off searching for water, not having enough food. And their descriptions were so very different from what I had experienced myself. And as I tried to explain to them, no, nomads have cell phones. No, I've sat in the middle of the step with a computer and watched movies at night charged by like a car battery or charged by a solar panel. And they're like, no, I don't think that's what's happening. And so I looked the literature base and I was like, fine, I'll assign you some readings and we'll read about it and then we'll have class and things will be better. And there's not much written. 
There's a lot of old anthropological reports. There's a lot of discussion about how nomads are losing their land to produce technology. But in the actual use of technology, there's very few articles. And in the articles that I could find, they were kind of written as an exception of like, look at this really rich herding family who has access to this, or look at this one community who can do this, but nobody else can. And so the book came out as a determination to produce a set of case studies to say, not all herders are using new um, technology. Not all of them are using social media, but some are, and some across the world. And they're forging fascinating new networks. And there's no reason not to study those networks and participate in those networks, especially because even during COVID, those networks are still actually functional and if anything, more accessible than they used to be. And so I started to look at the ways that nomadic communities are using Twitter, nomadic communities are using YouTube, such as the Maasai, who have been able to document the ways in which their lands are, um, are lost. And no longer is it an oral argument that they're trying to prevent in court, but it's actually someone stood there with their smartphone and videoed the ways in which that land was lost and the radical transformative ways that that's changed the ways arguments can be made, lands can be reclaimed, or at least they can be documented in the prosecutions that many of these communities are facing. Hmm. Um, and so I think maybe something we should maybe clarify sort of up front are, is the terminology that you use um, when referring to, you know, you've been saying nomadic communities, um, but you also throughout your book use terms like herders and pastoralists, and you have a section in your introduction, which any book about nomadic people sort of has to preface what they're saying by unpacking a little bit the um, history and biases um, that underpin terms like nomad or pastoralist. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, the language that you use to refer to the people that you were working on um, and how you kind of came to those terms? Sure. So in my book, I try to use the word herder as much as possible because I'm very much speaking about people who are moving with herds, particularly about Mongolians and inner Mongolians, about Maasai people, about Sami people, and the ways in which they um, are moving with sheep, goats, cattle, camel, horses, yaks, depending on where they are. I try to stick to the term herd because the herd itself is so incredibly important to these communities. But as you point out, there's a lot of baggage that comes along with the term nomad or pastoral nomad. There's this expectation that a nomad can simply wander anywhere. And so if they're displaced from one place, it doesn't really matter because they could go somewhere else quite easily. But in the expansion of cities, the expansions of farms, but also because communities exist in lots of places, nomads can't just go from one location without encroaching on somebody else. And so there's a political entailment in making sure that the herd is centralized, right? but also that in speaking about these communities, even though quickly I do frequently refer to them as nomads, that it's pointed out that they're really on a migration that they're not people without a homeland. They're not people who are aimlessly wandering and that a reflection is necessary of the historical documents which presume that they can simply go else, um, go elsewhere. Mm. Um, and 
you know, I'm curious about um, just sort of the logistics of how you conducted your research. You know, you have these quite seemingly disparate kind of case studies or case groups. You know, you mentioned um, that you, I think you started your research in Mongolia, but then you also write in your book about peoples in East Africa um, and in Scandinavia. And then you also at the very end move to North America. Um so I'm curious just about from a, you know, from a kind of logistical perspective, what were some of the challenges of conducting that research across these very different areas, very different cultures, very different languages? Um, and, you know, I think as scholars, we're often discouraged these days from doing research in that way. We're encouraged to have pretty narrow focuses on like one geography or on one time period. Um, so your approach here of um, linking groups in very different parts of the world seems a bit novel now. So I'm just curious how you, what challenges you might have encountered and how you sort of overcome them. Definitely. Essentially, I got lucky. Um, my undergraduate studies were in Africana studies, and I was supposed to intern as an undergraduate in Kenya. But political events occurred at that time when I should have been going to Kenya that the university canceled the trip. And so at that point, I had funding lined up. I had been studying Swahili, which became unhelpful in the situation that I found myself in. But there was a spot to go to Mongolia to do a similar study with nomadic peoples, although in a very different place. And so working with my advisor, we did a lot of background research, and we found that actually a lot of scholars had worked in both Kenya and Tanzania and in Central Asia. So at least historically, the transition made sense. And so I went to Mongolia instead of Kenya as an undergraduate, and I really loved it. I went back the next summer, and I ended up running the University of Pittsburgh's Mongolian Field Studies program for a number of years, which was a fantastic way to fund my own research um, and ensure that I could keep returning to the field sites that I was working in. But while I was there, I was meeting with a lot of researchers who, some of them just came to Mongolia as a the most exotic case study they could find. And it looks good on a funding application to be able to say, even in Mongolia, they do this weird thing. Right? But it gave me a good network to meet with scholars who had worked in other parts of the world and to see the ways that they were doing their research as well. And it set me up pretty well for when I was doing my PhD studies that I was finally able to go to Kenya and Tanzania and do the field research there almost a decade later that I intended to do as an undergrad. But in between that period of time, uh, while I was in Mongolia, I started coaching the Mongolia national debate team. And one of the largest competitions that they had at that time was held in Qatar. So I was able to go um, with funding from the Qatar Foundation to Qatar to, to start coaching the debate team there, right? But also to begin to do field work uh, there as well. And um, they sent me to Turkey as well and a couple of other Central Asian and Middle Eastern countries, which was a, a great way to flesh out that study. And then later I started working with my colleague Ariel Ahern, who's at the University of Oxford, um, with the Oxford Desert Conference, which brought together lots of other people that are working in these desert regions. And I got to go to Scandinavia finally at the very end from that as well. And it was really important for me in working on this book that I'd actually been to all the places that I'm writing about, that I've met people from the communities with whom I'm speaking, both online, but also in person to, to um, understand 
the realities in which they're working. Because so many of the papers, at least regarding Mongolia, are written in that place of exceptionalism, right? Of like, it's so far away, nobody could ever possibly go there. So I did this very base level of research and here's my paper. And I didn't want my work to be that. But you are right that there's an incredible pressure to focus on one particular region and to become an expert in that region. And I've been lucky that when I was choosing my PhD studies, I stayed away from area studies for that reason. I very seriously thought about becoming a Mongolianist. And I, in some ways, wish that I had to have that deep understanding to ensure that every year I would go back to the same country and get to know that context so exceptionally well. But at the same time, by turning to communication, particularly in international communication, I feel like I've been able to take a more globalist view of these changes. Uh, And it, it works well in my work with people who have become area studies experts Right, to be able to draw those interconnections, which is what the book tries to get to, that there are such deep understandings in these particular reasons, but there is also international networks which are beginning to appear, which really need to be attended to because they help us to see that it's not just a one-off that a community is being successful, but actually many communities are being successful in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think um, something that, really sort of stood out to me when reading your book, which is, you know, I'm coming more from a history background, is sort of the nature of the archive um, and the creation or maybe just the existence of this kind of digital archive um, that you're kind of combing through um, in order to sort of make your argument, which is something that I don't really encounter or have to deal with too much in my own research where I'm looking much more at the kind of traditional, you know, like colonial archive or what have you. Although I think, I mean, you did um, bring up institutions like that in your book. So maybe we can talk about that too. Um, I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what is the nature of this kind of digital archive, sort of quote unquote, of, you know, pastoralist political participation does the fact that you know modern um information um, communications technology infrastructure does this give pastoralists and or herder communities kind of more representation in the mainstream um than more traditional archives typically do you know you've talked about how sort of underrepresented and under understood pastoralists are in the popular imagination. And a lot of that is because, you know, herder communities tend to preserve information in ways that are not typically, you know, archive friendly through, you know, oral culture and things like that. So do you think that digital communications technologies, is this changing how pastoralists are able to kind of preserve themselves and sort of be preserved and therefore kind of enter into mainstream political participation in a way? Yes, but I think that there's a danger that comes with it as well. So there's a lot of mistrust of the archives amongst many groups of people, right? But amongst pastoralist herders, 
especially. And Richard Tigner writes about this a lot when he writes about how the archives, even in Kenya and Tanzania, don't have nearly as many documents as they do when you go to the supposedly exact same collection in England, right? There are things that have been historically left out that have been edited that have simply been lost. Uh, Also, there's a lot of things that communities have tried to control who has access to. And I write about this in the chapter about the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, that many communities have oral histories and information that they want to be able to control who has access to. And so there's been a concern about putting too much online, right? Or particularly about young people putting too much online that they don't fully understand the entailments of it being posted and publicly accessible. Because once it's out there, it's hard to get back, right? And there's power in that knowledge. There's a history in that knowledge. There's a necessary contextualization frequently that perhaps the reader doesn't have. And there's a significant and very real and justified fear about things being misquoted or misrepresented. But in addition to that fear, it's definitely produced a space in which researchers, in which students, in which people from all walks of life are able to access more legitimate information about hurting communities and frequently have their expectations of what hurting communities may or may not be questioned. And I write a lot in the book about authenticity and how communities have trouble in proving how authentic they are online, right? Of overcoming the expectation that these communities must not speak English, right? Or they must not wear modern clothes, or they must not do X, Y, or Z that makes them seem legitimate enough and the the difficulty in overcoming that. But when I speak to my students in New York City, they also face that same difficulty in many different ways, right? My students that live in the projects have the same problem of authenticating themselves, of showing them true their true selves within a social media archive um, and controlling what can be seen and what can't be seen. So it's not so different from the expectations of other communities. What is tricky though, is that many of these communities are facing pressures from their governments and there's lots of empowering um, moments which they can use social media to overcome those uh, repressions. But at the same time, they're highlighting themselves to the community as well. The Southern Mongolian uh, Human Rights Information Center has published a lot of work coming out of Inner Mongolia. And frequently, those posts have been taken down in China or the people who have made the posts have faced repercussions immediately right? Because it's easy to find who's protesting. It's easy to track them to their home. It's easy to follow them from the protest back to their home. Uh, And in doing that, it heightens the risk sometimes, even though it makes the archives so much better. And so you you use the term image testimonies um, throughout the book, which was a new one to me. Could you expand a bit on what that actually, on what that means, uh, especially in the social media context that you're referring to? Definitely, right? The the idea of image testimony, it has four different parts to it. The first is that there's a subject, right? There's somebody that's making some sort of testimony. The second is that there's an an event that requires a testimony, which seems reasonably obvious. But the interesting part is when we get to the third part, that an audience is being addressed by the testimony and who that audience might be. In the image testimony is frequently an event that's being prepared, not necessarily for your own community, right? You're not speaking to your mom about an event, but you're speaking to the broader world and you're providing a contextualization to help them understand that situation. And then you're intentionally using media to disseminate that image, 
Right? This is very similar to the um, work that's done by Kevin DeLuca about image events when he talks about the ways that Greenpeace produces photographs specifically for dissemination to the rest of the world. And he talked quite a bit about how protesters in the 1970s and 80s were protesting against whaling ships. And so they'd have a huge whaling ship in the background and a little tiny rubber dinghy with a protester on it for Greenpeace, right? And it looks like the Greenpeace protester is so vulnerable in the face of this huge whaling ship. But what you don't see behind the protester is Greenpeace's ship that brought him there on the little tiny rubber dinghy, right? Like it's an, an image which is intentionally set up for dissemination and to evoke a particular type of ethos and pathos. Um, so image testimonies are in the same line, except that they're much more multimodal, right? They are a video which has been produced. It's an image that's been specifically produced. The SAMI are exceptionally good at this. When you look for Sami Media, particularly on YouTube, you can find um, images and songs and protests. They're using drones to record the vast field and then zooming in on a beautiful lady who's singing a traditional song of protest against preserving a particular piece of land, right? The whole event comes together. Maasai um, men and women have also produced similar testimonies where they appear in their very traditional garments, making very clear statements of people have spoken for us in the past. Now we're speaking for ourselves and they work to show that they've produced the video themselves, that this is the types of conflicts that they're facing and they directly respond to arguments that have been made by the government, particularly about overgrazing, and they show you the lands that are clearly not overgrazed. They talk about the ways in which they tend to their cattle, and they talk about the repercussions that they're facing from the government. And in bringing together that image, right, but also the work of the authenticity and the work that they do to speak to a global, um, a global audience, right, they're producing a new form of image testimony, which can only exist through social media. Right. And it's particularly powerful because it's different than older documentaries. Right. This isn't the famous filmmaker who flies in with their big crew. Right. And they take the, the documentary and they edit it down to be particularly how they like and then they depart. Right. This is a community who's continually reproducing new image testimonies to respond to new events. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating about it in the terms of social media is the technology that they're using to produce these image testimonies is new, right? It's not that they're using old broken phones or they're using video camcorders from the 80s. They're tending to use very new technology and they're getting that through a multiple of different ways. But one of the fascinating ways in Kenya is that they're getting it from conservation projects. Right? A lot of Maasai herders are being hired to work for conservation projects. They're being sourced with technologies to be able to follow wildlife. They're being trained in the use of computer technologies and editing. And then when the project leaves, frequently they're keeping those technologies because they're deemed as disposable um, if they're worth less than $5,000 or $3,000, depending on the project. So some of these communities have vast access to technologies. And in the Serengeti region, they also have exceptionally good Wi-Fi because it's been bolstered to make sure that tourists, when they go on holiday, can post back to all their relatives about what a beautiful time they're having. So international infrastructures are making it so much easier for these image testimonies to be viewable to the world. Hmm. And so on the topic of the kind of specific technologies that are used by the herder communities that you study, um, you know, I was struck by how, you know, as you just said, some of these technologies that are being used are 
exactly the same ones that we use in our, you know, Western sedentary lives, um, and they're being used in exactly the same way. But then, you know, some of the people that you study have to kind of adapt existing technologies to kind of fit the unique constraints or challenges or just, you know, to fit a kind of herder lifestyle and what that actually looks like and how that's practiced. Um, so I guess my question is, you know, is there sort of a sedentary bias in how like technology companies create devices and like social media technologies and things like that? Um, you know, do you think that, and then maybe sort of a complimentary question, um, do you think that your research poses sort of implications um, for like telecommunications companies, you know, do pastoralists and their user needs represent like an untapped market? That's fascinating. So the, the second part, if they pose an untapped market, probably, but the, the, also, it seems as though their needs are met pretty well through existing social media, although there's things that emerge that aren't necessarily the same. So I was reading yesterday about SameNet, which was produced by Sammy Herders, which was similar to Facebook, but specific only to Sammy. And it produced a space where they didn't have to authenticate themselves and they didn't have to explain themselves to the Western world. They could just speak as themselves within that platform. Um, and there's definitely ex examples of that throughout all the herding communities that I speak about, right? Inter-Mongolians are very preferential to using platforms that allow them to use Inter-Mongolian script or Mongolian traditional script, as opposed to having to use Chinese characters or having to use Roman characters. And But those differentiations are, are perhaps minimal. The, the big sedentary bias question, though, is interesting. And a lot of herding communities, one of the problems that they face is being able to send enough data at a particular point and herding into regions where they have some cell phone coverage, but it's not perfect, or there's blackout regions, right? And herders frequently know if you go to this particular space, you'll get great reception, right? And when you're with communities and you're trying to send a message, they're like, oh no, go over there, two miles to the west, right? Excellent reception exists there. So they know where to go. And they're tending to use technologies that allow them to receive data in, in a blip, right? To get it all at once. And so I write a bit about Bedouin women that are using WhatsApp to send voice messages, right? And when they send those voice messages, they're sending them so that they can be downloaded all at once when somebody gets to a spot, right? And then that person can respond, right? All at once and is waiting as if a voicemail would be waiting for you, right? But it's much easier for them to access and freer and some locations. And using WhatsApp's um, voice feature is fascinating because it overcomes a lot of the problems of literacy, which exists, right? And it overcomes also having your screen broken or having too much sand on your screen or having sorts of difficulties, right? That make it really difficult to type at a moment, right? Or just having your hands filled with whatever you're doing for the day. So it makes that technology much more accessible. The other problem which herders have done a great job of overcoming is that you simply need to charge these devices. And I don't write about it so much in the book, but I've been working on a project that speaks about the ways in which solar panels have been distributed throughout Mongolia um, in the 100,000 Gare project, which was eventually expanded, so that nearly every herding family in Mongolia is able to access solar panels or access some sort of electronics, um, electronic charging center 
throughout the, the countryside. And so they don't necessarily need to be attached to an electronic grid and they don't need to be using car batteries, which previously was the way in which things were being charged. And so by expanding solar power, they're able to move away from that expectation that they must constantly return to a sedentary place. The other thing that um, the sedentary bias actually goes in favor of the herders is that so many are doing banking through their cell phones. And in this way, their money's much safer, right? You can't mug somebody for their cell phone credits, right? Because even if you get a hold of their cell phone, it's still password protected and they can retrieve it as soon as they get to somebody else's cell phone and can log into their account. And so this has allowed herders to not have to go into town to do their banking, right? But also to feel much more comfortable transferring large amounts of money to kids that are at boarding school or to families that live in different locations or for children who have gone into the city, right, not as children, but as like 30 and 40 year olds who are working for a short period of time in a city and expect to become herders again, to save up their money or to send money back to their parents without having to make such a long journey. And so in some ways, the cell phones and new technologies have cut down the amount of travel, but it made it easier for herders to exist in their pastoral lifestyles. Yeah, I was just going to ask about um, the use of like online banking methods, because that was a really fascinating example to me that came up in your book that I had never, never would have thought about, but makes so much sense. Um, So I guess something, I think a big question, um, or just kind of a tension that comes out of your research is, you know... Um, So in your conclusion, you talk about the differences between herders and kind of digital nomads um, in terms of how these groups both actually use ICTs um, and are imagined by external observers or stakeholders to use ICTs. And, you know, I think it's interesting how on the one hand, you know, for digital nomads, modern communications technology infrastructure is held up as a good thing and a sort of a net positive for society, especially in light of the pandemic. You know, it's something that facilitates remote work and allows for, you know, increased travel and work-life balance and, you know, what have you for, at least for a certain subset of predominantly Western white workers in certain industries. Um, But then as you wrote about, you know, for pastoralists, um, you know, development agencies or international aid workers or academics often kind of shy away from integrating ICTs into pastoralist communities with the rationale that either these technologies kind of won't be adopted or won't really be useful in these contexts or that they're kind of inherently incompatible with maintaining a kind of quote unquote pure pastoralist lifestyle. So what do you kind of what do you make of this tension? How do we kind of reconcile this in the popular imagination this idea that, you know, for some people ICTs can foster nomadism and that for some people nomadism is a good thing, um, but that for others it might kind of end nomadism. It's tricky, right? When you search for digital nomads, you find all sorts of like studies and suggestions about how to live your best life as an accountant on your phone in Thailand on the beach, right? And it's, there's a lot of evidence about that, right? And 
it's theoretically difficult, right? When you look into the theory, particularly thinking about nomadology, you can read a, lo a lot about Deleuze and Guattari and how their theory of nomadology has pulled from historical understandings of nomads to produce this metaphor of how to exist in a late modern capitalist world, right? In which you can move from one element to another, right? In which you can quickly pack up everything, in which you can exist, but only certain people can exist in that method, right? And living as a digital nomad in that way requires so many layers of support, right? And frequently suppression, right? Not everybody can travel the world as a digital nomad working as an accountant, right? Or working um, in digital media, right? You still need someone who's building a house, who's providing food, right? Who's bringing in certain supplies, who's cleaning the water. Like all of those are very settled existences. And so when we think about digital nomads in that modern context, right? I think it's important to realize that only a few people are actually living out that system and it's supported by like a very sedentary system. Right. And frequently people are coming and going, right? They're living as a digital nomad for like a year or two, and then they go back to wherever they've come from. And then maybe they go out again, and then maybe they come back. But that process is actually very similar to what many of the herding communities that I'm looking at are doing as well, particularly when they're at the same age, right? Many of the digital nomads in this modern world who are working in these remote locations are in their 20s and 30s and 40s. And that's around the same age that many herding communities, youth, are going and they're seeking employment in sedentary situations. They're going to university. They're attending specialized high schools. They're doing these types of sedentary activities and then they're going back to their herds. And then they're going out again, right? And they're storing up money. They're trying to put it away. And it's not like the accountant who's trying to retire early. These herding youth are storing up their money to buy a herd and retire, perhaps from sedentary life, to return to their herds, right? And so that proce process, that ebb and flow is very similar between the two groups with very different expectations at the end, right? Like at the end, one group wants to be sedentary and the other group generally want to be herders, right? So the outcome's different, but the process of movement is quite the same. And in thinking about that process of movement, I think is one of the really critical places of interaction, right? And of seeing herders in the context of which they're working. And sometimes it's really visible. If you're in Nairobi, um, in some of the fancier housing districts, it's very popular to have Maasai men as your security guard, right? Um, they're dressed as Maasai warriors standing in front of your house with their sphere, right, guarding your house as security guards, and they have an excellent reputation for doing so. So you can see them, right? But you can't always see the herders in these various contexts. When I was at the University of, um, National University of Mongolia, there's many children there who come from herding families and anticipate going back from herding families. But if you're standing up in front of a room of 20 students, you're not going to be able to pick them out, right? They are appearing in very similar ways. And so I, I think that the difficulty that we get into is putting them in that constantly herder or constantly nomad category, right? Because it's not nearly as stable. And so that's why in the book that I write a little bit about Zygmunt Bauman as well, right? And about the concept of liquid modernity and the ways in which I feel as though herders, particularly herding youth that are using these new digital media tools and social media tools are living out a wonderful example 
of that liquid modernity, right? They're very smoothly moving between these spaces, right? Adapting as they go along and eschewing these historic expectations that they're settled or not settled. But the problem that you point to at the beginning of your question is that many development projects and many older academic projects don't necessarily recognize that, right? They declare success in the development context when a young person comes from a hurting family, they go to boarding school, they go to university, and like now they're settled, right? Now they're developed, now they're modern, right? And they look past the expectation, which is very clear when you speak to many of these individuals, that they want to go back to be a herder when they retire, right? That they're saving up their money to buy a herd that their uncle's looking after, which will be theirs one day, right? Or they think of those individuals as failures in some sort of space, right? Like they couldn't make it as being settled, so they must go back to herding, as opposed to that it's actually a very informed choice. And I think that when we think about that informed choice, it's important to look at scholars like Amartya Sen when he writes about development as freedom, right? As development, as the capability to say no, right? I understand all the entailments of what you're offering in this development project or in this sedentary life, and like, I'm just not into it, right? That's not the path in which I choose to take. And that's not to say that all hurting children who go to university want to become herders again. There's definitely some who are very happy being settled, right? But the possibility for them to do that exists. And that's where a lot of projects fall short is that they disregard that. And sometimes it's just a matter of the time period in which the development project or which the um, academic project is looking, right? If you're only looking in a one-year window or a five-year or a 10-year window, right? Might look sedentary, Right? But if you're looking 40 years when you're speaking to a 20-year-old, the, the view becomes very different. And so do you think that modern technology is making it easier for herders to engage in this kind of, you know, coming and going sort of between pastoralism and sedentarism to kind of exist along this spectrum? Do you think that that is changing in light of the adoption of modern technology and communications technologies? It's definitely making it easier for some to to come and go, right? Or not to go at all, right? A lot of the things that you would go to get, right, that you would go to get better prices for meat, right, you now can call a relative and get those prices over the phone, right, that you would go for education. There's a lot of different programs that have emerged to do that education at home, right? Some of it's over radio, as they've done in Uganda, some of it's over cell phones, as they've done in Scandinavia, but whatever the case might be, you can be better educated at home now without having to lose all of those cultural instances, right? The pressure to put children forcibly in boarding schools, has thankfully ended, right? And I write about that a lot in the United States. This is the first generation of students who weren't forced into boarding schools, who could stay home with their parents, who could learn their traditional cultures, but also could feel connected to other communities at the same time. And that's radically changing the ways in which children are growing up and the ways in which they're using new and social media, right? In which they are proudly declaring their cultural history, right? And studying about it um, and sharing that with the world, right? And in many places in the United States and in Canada and Australia and Scandinavia and Tanzania and Kenya, lots of places, right? That cultural history was repressed, right? Or was put in a place of shame or was put in a place of like, we don't talk about that with outsiders, 
right? From clothing to hairstyle to traditional languages, we've seen a great resurgence that's happening through new and social media. One of the really cool things that I think's happened is that a lot of communities are going so far as developing video games and developing children's programming, right? To make it fun from the start for children of their own community, but also children from many other communities as well. And that excitement, right, is new, right? It's something that we didn't previously had, and I think opens up so many possibilities uh, for children, wherever they might end up being, right? To, to learn about these different ways of life, but also to think about them as being something stable and something that still exists, right? I write about the expectation of disappearance, and I feel as though social media in some ways has removed that expectation, right? Or at least questions it. Hmm. And what about like demographic differences among the um, herder communities that you work with in terms of the adoption of um, modern communications or modern technologies? You know, I think it's some, you know, it is something of a trope that, you know, we sort of say like, oh, old people like can't use technology or don't want to or are scared of it or whatever. Um was that also the case in the groups that you worked with? I know it's maybe hard to answer that because, you know, you don't want to paint with sort of too broad a brush. But did you find any kind of, I don't know, demographic differences among class or age or gender lines in terms of who was really excited to use social media, to use cell phones and how they were using those technologies? Huh. Um, I mean, I've definitely been chased in several communities by older people who want me to fix their phone uh, uh, or people I've been traveling with, right? If somebody you ask about cell phones are like, oh, I have one. And then out of the handbag comes like a thousand pieces of a Nokia from the mid 1980s. And you're like, okay, we'll get to figure out how to put this thing back together. Um, that happens in the United States too. I've been approached at Starbucks by an older lady who's like, please, I've done something. And so I think that that's congruent throughout the world in various different ways. But one of the things I think that's really fascinating, and I write about this in the chapter about Bedouin women, is that a lot of times when herding communities have moved towards being sedentary, the life of various people in the family, particularly women in the, the Bedouin context, has changed right? The reasons to leave the home, the reasons to work in the larger context of the world, right? Begin to shrink. And sometimes the ways in which they're able to communicate with other people in their community have become difficult, right? Either because there's pressures that come to them from outside expectations, right? If you're too backward or you're too other, or you're just different or whatever the situation might be from the family that doesn't necessarily trust the rest of the community, right? And is worried about what might happen if you venture into the world or just justifications of like, why are you doing that when all of your work is somewhere else, right? And so access to social media and access to cellular phones has really helped to overcome that, Right, to make sure that community members, even when they're far away, are still able to access their own community, but also able to access the broader world, even if they physically are being encouraged to, to stay physically in their home or in their apartment or wherever they might be. But it is important to recognize, I think in a lot of situations, is that these tend to be the wealthier herders that have access to cellular phones and access to social media, right? And so I write a lot about statistics in the book about how many herders have access to something. And it's a lot, 
right? Technically, it might be everybody in the community, but it's important to recognize that perhaps they're not the one that owns the phone, right? They're not the one that's carrying it. They might have to go and find somebody to be able to access something. And that's produced interesting new networks of distribution of information, right? Where everyone gives one uncle's phone number to anyone that needs to call them. Uncle gets all the phone calls, right? And is frequently sending out kids as runners to go find somebody, right? To deliver a message or to get something. And it's produced new networks, right? Of communication, but also obligation, based on that. You better be nice to that uncle at that point, right? Because he's the one that's controlling all your information, right? And he's also hearing all of it, right? There's a new modicum of censorship that's coming through at that particular moment as well. So it's definitely changed social situations. And there's a a fear in some communities also, right? Of what are these young people saying to the world about us, right? In many communities which have a hierarchical stance where only elders should be speaking, Right. And it's young people who are on social media, particularly young people that are on public facing social media. There's a lot of concern about maybe they don't understand the repercussions of what they're saying. Maybe they're letting out information that we don't generally make public. Maybe they're doing something that historically would have been quite dangerous, not dangerous now, but could be dangerous in the future. Right. So it's caused a lot of reckoning between that. Um, But those are pressures that all communities face. Mm -hmm at the same time, right? Like I'm terrified when my teenagers tell me what they put on social media. I'm like, oh, the whole world can see that, right? At 40, you're going to definitely regret that, right? And so I, I don't think that it's really unique in that way, right? But it is important that it's changing social structures within a community. But to the last point about older people using new media and social media, it's, I've been fascinated, right? Like I've had grandparents who have very deftly been using these medias within their own communities. So I I don't want it to produce the expectation that it's only teenagers, right? But it would be correct to say that it is a preponderance of younger people that are using these technologies. Okay. Okay. Um, So if you can maybe transition to talk um, a little bit about the kind of political argumentation strategies that are being used by these herders through um, through social media mm-hmm. um, primarily, which is, a, I think, a really important part of your argument that we haven't really gotten into yet. Can you just maybe explain a little bit um, what exactly, what are the kind of key political issues that the herding communities that you work with are kind of confronted with at the moment? I would say that they all surround the expectation that they will become sedentary, right? And from that expectation comes land loss, right? Or comes mining, particularly open pit mining, which makes it impossible to have a herd, right? When now there's a large pit where you once reason, um, would have crossed with your herd, comes healthcare risks. Right, particularly when arsenic is leached into groundwater, um, when it's used to flush out copper and gold mines, or just when products are being sold that have been removed from the market in other contexts and are sold to herders with very little oversight about food that might have spoiled or plastics that might be leaching or, or various problems that come along with that. And there's also a cultural politic as well, right, of the expectation that communities will give up their traditional languages and will begin to speak Swahili or begin to speak English or begin to speak Mandarin, whatever the case might be in the cer- certain place that they're in. Um, but all of those 
go along with the expectation that herders will become citizens that are sedentary, that speak the proper language, wear the proper clothes, right? And behave as the larger nation state in which they currently are assigned. And that citizenship question, right, is really important and necessary, particularly for communities who are barred from claiming citizenship until they've gone through that process of acculturation with a sedentary community who frequently have to balance their expectations between staying a herder, but being a stateless person, right? Or settling, getting citizenship, but giving up their traditional culture. And that's a a really terrible predicament for a group of people to be in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, I mean, I think it's important to state clearly that, you know, contrary to maybe popular imagination, you know, nomadic peoples or herders have never had any kind of political representation or political agency. You know, when I asked you about archives um, earlier, you know, one of the main archives that I use is um, an archive of Bedouin petitions to the Ottoman state and then later to British mandate authorities around land rights and around disputes over wells and water access and things like that around um, financial policy you know, all of these things that, so we do see historically, you know, herders being very politically involved, having a lot of political agency and kind of having the means and the wherewithal to express that um, and to kind of make political demands of whoever the kind of state authority might be. But it does seem, you know, and in your book, you also bring up examples from non-pastoralist contexts, you know, like the Arab Spring and these other kind of political, large political movements that really were fomented on social media and kind of happened the way that they did because of social media. So do you think that, you know, social media is kind of playing the same role in pastoralist contexts where it's allowing people to have more agency than they previously did to have more representation to kind of make greater and sort of more visible demands of their political representatives. Definitely. And in that visibility, right, frequently it's not that they weren't making protests in the past. As you point out, right, there's historic archives. There's also much more recent archives, right? And I write a lot in this book and in other places about the ways that the Maasai lost the land that should have become Maasai land at the point when Kenya and Tanzania become independent countries, right? And the ways in which they've continually protest about the loss of their land and the ways in which like very few people paid attention, Right? in which early Tanzanian government officials said that they wouldn't recognize the Maasai until they came to court wearing pants and had shaved their head and looked like proper citizens, right? or behaved in certain ways that gave up a lot of culture before they could make their arguments. Social media has um, produced a space in which these communities can overcome those pressures right? and can demand to other worldly authorities that their arguments be taken into account, that the historicity of those arguments be properly attended to, that maps be documented, that boundaries be protected. The Tanzanian um, Maasai people were able to appeal to the European Union's parliament, right? And to get investigators to come and to look into land loss, right? Mongolian herders were able to sue one of the world's largest mining companies and appeal to the World Trade Organization and win their case, 
right? In ways that were backed by evidence that was collected partially through social media, through the herders' social media, but also through the miners' social media, right? Who are taking pictures of a, like, look at me opening up this new mine, right? And producing photo- <laughs> photographic evidence of the things that they then claim that they hadn't done, right? It's produced a whole new body of authenticated evidence, but it's also allowed these herding groups to reach authority figures who previously seemed to be out of their realm of acknowledgement, right? Or would have been exceptionally exceptional for them to be able to get the attention of. And so power hierarchies are definitely changing because of that, right? But the government response to those is also changing, right? You see the ways in which governments are trying to quickly censor those um, elements that are posted online, right? Either through language or through images, right? Or declaring them to be uh, against the state or propagandists or or various ways, right? And in those repressions, you also see the acknowledgement of the power that an image, right, particularly these types of image testimonies hold, right, and the risk that they produce to the state at that same time. And so if we could, um, as we're coming up on the end of our time, um, I just wanted to ask or to um, prompt you to talk more about the example that you round out your book with, which is um, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests in Standing Rock. Um where you, as you discuss, um, all of the kind of different communities that you research in all these different parts of the world came together uh, in support of the Dakota Access Pipeline protesters in Standing Rock, which is, you know, maybe historically, the Native American communities in the region have a tradition of pastoralism, but is not really present today. So can you talk about how all of those things kind of intersected in that situation? You know, how all of the different, I thought it was a really just like beautiful example to end on all of these different threads of your research coming together. Definitely. The the Dakota-Axos pipeline protests were occurring at the time when I was starting to think about this book, right? So I was watching them and I was doing a lot of search on social media for the various groups that I knew I was going to write about. And it was really surprising and fascinating, but perhaps not totally unexpected when I was looking at coverage one day and Sami protesters had come to the Dakota Access Pipeline. I was like, oh, that's that's fascinating, right? And they immediately start making the connections that you're alluding to, right? That many Native American communities, particularly those partic- participating in the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, have a history of herding. Some of them do still cattle herd, and there's all sorts of fascinating debates in the American West about where they can herd, right? Where they can't, who has access, if they should have more or less access than white settlers who came later, right? Who generally have the ability to herd much easier than Native Americans who historically have lived on that land. But they start to draw together, right? All of these historical entanglements and international presence as well. And I was like, oh, I wonder if other people are coming, right? Because there, there were reporters coming in from across the world and protesters from across the world, but the Samini were interesting because they're able to make that indigenous comparison, right? But also that his herding and pastoralist comparison as well. And what I found was that the Sambo from Kenya were also beginning to post online, particularly through Twitter and Facebook, their support for the Access Pipeline. They didn't come, right? But they're holding a sign, right? We stand with. And in looking at those posts, you see the skepticism that begins to emerge online. People are like, oh, they don't know what they're talking about, right? Or like some tourist gave them a sign and like, isn't it sad that they don't know what they're standing with, 
right? But they didn't, right? These Saburo herders, by and large, speak English, have access to this communication. They know very clearly what it is that they're protesting for. And when you look a little bit further, Mongolian shaman, right, also protesting in a very similar way, right, sending their own very authenticated images, particularly against mining and oil companies, right, but drawing together this loss of land and hurting life as well. And Bedouin communities begin to post in the same sort of a way, right? And you see the emergence gradually spreading, right, of this international network, which is emerging amongst youth from these communities, some who have enough money to come to the community, some who are simply connecting online, right, or who are beginning to share the repercussions that they have in their own communities, right? The problems that they face frequently from the same corporations operating internationally in various places and coming up with new solutions about ways that they can attend to these problems. Now, the Sami protesters were particularly helpful in that they pressed for disinvestment by banks, right? particularly Deutsche Bank and I'm forgetting the name of the other one, but they pressed for for sub, or for Credit Suisse um, to disinvest from the Kodo Access Pipeline, right? And that has large repercussions throughout the world, right? But other communities as well, even though they're not able to have such a large financial impact immediately, have continued after their participation in the Dakota Access Pipeline to share cultural heritage moments, right? To produce festivals. COVID made it very difficult for many of these communities to meet in person, Right, but almost fostered the flowering of better online networks between them, in which you can see song, you can see dance, you can see all sorts of like cultural videos being shared, but also very strategic ways to get elders to respect in the research that they're doing, to file legal petitions, right, to protest against land losses, and to demand that even if you can't get the land back, that some sort of reparation should be paid to the community. So I end by thinking about that event because it's one of the few, but perhaps the largest moments when through new media and through social media, so many communities were able to come together and to see the ways in which the pressures that they're facing are very similar, to know that they're not necessarily alone, but also to know that other communities have access to the same tools, right, which allow them to become a much mightier force in their protests and in their rejection of these repressions that they're facing. Great. I think that's a good note, sort of uplifting note to end on. Uh, So thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your really interesting uh, research with us. Thanks for having me.